Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together and put ourselves under the means of grace, to pray for one another, to fellowship, and most of all, to be taught by you directly from your word, that our minds might be renewed and our lives changed, conform more fully to the image of Christ. And dear Lord, we do pray for those that are scattered around the world that listen in. May you bless them and feed them and take care of them and guard over their well-being. And Lord, we thank you for um, the topics that we have from the scriptures today, and we ask you to give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 11:32. Paul is finishing his uh, full speech, but he's not quite finished yet because the being caught up into heaven is part of it. And last week we studied all these things that he listed, all the terrible things that happened to him. And verse 30 was kind of a thematic and important. It says, if I have to boast, I'll boast what pertains to my weakness. And that's thematic, as I said, and we'll see that again in chapter 12 concerning Paul's thorn in the flesh. And here's what I want to say about the weakness thing that, that we're kind of our theme here. I think people might just tend to think Paul's being melodramatic, but he isn't. This is literally true. And all the things that make us weak vis-a-vis the things of this world are things that drive us to God's grace and where God perfects his power in weakness. I believe that literally happens. Okay, verse 32. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of, of Damascenes in order to seize me. All right, let's look up that. I want to get a historical note here. That one is from Barnett. Here's what he says. Death of Aretas IV in A.D. 40 establishes the latest date possible for Paul's escape from Damascus and therefore the latest possible date, A.D. 37 to 38, for Paul's conversion two to three years earlier. See Galatians 1:15 to 18. It's quite likely, however, that given A.D. 33 is the year of the crucifixion of Jesus, Paul's Damascus Road encounter would have occurred in A.D. 34 to 35 in the flight from Damascus in A.D. 36 and 37. So the early part of Paul's Christian life was in the late 30s A.D. And some of these people and places help us date things in Acts. And it's interesting, by the way, um, it's interesting that if you take Luke-Acts, and all of the details that are specified in Luke Acts, and there are a lot of them. People, places, their uh, governorships, the, the technical names for the type of province that they're in. You can have an imperial province or a senatorial province, and they're led by certain kinds of persons with special titles. And... You go all the way through Luke Acts. I was, Eric and I were talking about this on the phone the other day. You go all the way through Luke Acts, 
as I did studying under Dr. Brooks and others at seminary. And you check with cross uh, with secular history that's known. Luke has every detail correct except for possibly one. All right? And that's his Quirinius. It seems like he's out of order by four years in, I think, Luke 2 or something like that. All the rest of them are correct. So what do the critics do? They say, look at this Quirinius. This is fiction. It never happened. He didn't even know what he was talking about. Well, wait a second. If Luke was correct and accurate down to specific details as far as places, times, people, technical terms for leadership within the Roman Empire, so we got one case where it appears he might be off in his timing, why not give Luke the benefit of the doubt rather than the secular historian? Okay? Uh, but they're just looking for reasons to doubt the Scripture. They're, they work overtime to find reasons to doubt the Scripture. But the Bible, unlike any kind of a mythological religion, is grounded in history and, is, and includes details that can be specifically checked for accuracy. So, so that's what we have going on here. We have a specific person, where he was and at what time, it helps us get a date for Paul's conversion in the mid-30s A.D. Verse 33, And I was led down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. The term basket here, now he's, he's making an example of his weakness. Okay, Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Weak, Paul didn't say, I stood up to, I called down angels and defeated the entire army and walked out. You know, if you want to make up a mythological story to make yourself look great like the false teachers do, that's what you do. And Paul, in order to explain his weakness, so they, had to, they had to lure me out of the place in a fish basket or fish net. So an example of his weakness would be let down by a fish net. Hiding in a basket would be weakness. Garland says, talking about another guy here, Judge makes the case that Paul offers a parody of the achievement of the first Roman soldiers to scale a wall and earn a badge of courage. The wall crown, Corona Morales, one of the highest Roman military honors, was presented to the first soldier to go up over the wall of an enemy city. It was made of gold and fashioned to look like the turreted wall of a fortified city. Under the empire, it was awarded to no one below the rank of centurion. Judge suggests that the contrast between Paul's cowering descent in a basket from the wall of the city and the daring ascent of the wall by a courageous soldier would not have been lost on the Corinthians. Paul therefore describes a reversal of military bravery in another token of his humiliation and weakness. Such an inglorious escape is hardly something about which one could choose to boast. Paul was not the first one up, he was the first one down. <laughs> I scaled the wall. <laughs> No, I snuck out in a basket. So he really does believe in the reversal and not, not to be bragging. Why, why is it so important that, that our strength is perfected in weakness? What's the point of that? I think the issue is that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Good one. And if we're boasting in what we think we're good at, it's feeding something that God will oppose and actually driving us away from God. And if we take comfort and boast in what we're weak in, we're actually looking and exalting what God's doing in us and 
coming closer to where he has, has us for us to be. Yeah. Grace, and over to Glenn. I'm reading a book that I'm going to write a critique of. I had about five different people around the country ask me to critique this one book. And it's a book on spiritual disciplines that's being brought into various reform theology. And several people were alarmed. They said, we don't think this is right. And it does, what's it doing here? So I said, all right, I'll, I'll review the book. So I bought it. I've got about two-thirds of it uh, read. And it's starting to be really clear what's wrong. Okay? Not everything in there is wrong, but the guy's kind of a pragmatist, and so he, you know, some of the stuff is like the Word of God and prayer and things that we look at as means of grace, but I think his understanding of it is wrong. And I, if I would summarize what I read so far in this book, what he's saying is do more and try harder. Whatever you're doing, do more and try harder. You pray an hour, you better pray two hours. You memorize five verses, memorize ten. You know, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Well, that's, I, 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 Gary Gilly and I are emailing back and forth about this because he knows some of the people that brought this guy in and were alarmed about what's happening. And so I was going back and forth with Gary Gilly on this, and I said, uh, the problem with this do more and try harder is that the implication of it is you believe in your own abilities. Okay? So if I'm smart enough to memorize more verses than the next guy, then I'm a better Christian. Uh, and I said, and, and I heard teachings like this, if this book would have been available when I was a new Christian, it would have been toxic to me. Because that's exactly what I was thinking. That's why I went and joined a Christian commune. I was going to do more, and I was going to try harder. I was going to pray more. I was going to be more pious. And more, 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 more. Because I was believing in my own strength. Now, talking back and forth about this, strength and weakness the same with Gary Gilley, and I really appreciate it. What a wonderful pastor he is. Here's what I'm thinking here. Faith needs an object. Does it not? Faith needs an object. Is my own willingness to work hard an appropriate object of faith? No, because that's putting faith in self. All right? Well, what is an appropriate object of faith? The promise of God, God himself and his promises. Now, in Hebrews, we're going through Hebrews. One of the things Dick and I were doing, we were looking at Abraham as an example. And Abraham believed the promise of God in Genesis 22. Okay, Abraham didn't say, well, okay, I want to make this hard. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac. It wasn't his idea. God was the one who had promised Abraham, and God is the one who called him to sacrifice Isaac, so he put his faith in the promise of God. And, and the promise of God and the oath of God. There were two unshakable things, the promise of God or the oath of God. Now, if God promises me, Bob, if you memorize ten verses a day, you will become like Jesus Christ. If God promised that, then it would be legitimate to put faith in his promise and that he'd give me grace to do that, right? But he didn't promise that. I can't have faith in my own ability to work harder. I can't have faith in my own ability to be holy. I can only have faith in the promise of God. And what did God tell us? How does God meet us? On what terms do we come to him? By grace through faith and under the means of grace, we, we put ourselves under the teaching of the word and prayer and fellowship, Lord's Supper, things like that. We have faith because God told us he would meet us there. As we said before, if we were in the Old Covenant and we were the high priest, we could have the, what is it again, Urim and the 
thumbin, the thumbin. Yeah, you could have the thumbin, and it would not be divination if God said, make this thumbin and, and have it with the high priest, and when you consult it, that's how I'll meet you. It's not divination because God commanded it, and he said that he'd meet them there. All right? But when we make up our own practices, even ones that are in the Bible, one of the practices in this book was serving. Serving was a spiritual discipline. But what is the question? Hold on here. We've got a category problem. All right? I affirm that God tells us to serve. But serving is the result of God's gracious work in our life, not the cause of it. It's backwards. The more I serve, then the more God's going to meet me by grace. He doesn't say that. The more he meets you by grace, the more you serve. So you got to, that's why we distinguish between means of grace and everything else. And I told, as a, Gary, Gary's going to write a book about this, so I told him we'll just keep talking and try to work out these categories. Everything in the Bible is binding on us that God tells us. God tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay, that's fine. I should do that. But he doesn't say that if you show up and rejoice with joyful people, then you'll become like Jesus. It's not a means of grace. It's a result of grace. That's the difference. Okay. just wanted to add to that for a second. Um, the reason why that system breaks down is because part of the means of grace is the proper amount of meditation. And if you start to double how many verses you're going to memorize, you're, going to, you're, going to, you're not going to remember anything because then you're, you're, you're challenging yourself to do something above and beyond that you can actually comprehend. So meditation is everything. It's better to meditate on one great sermon on a Sunday than three or five because you won't remember anything by Tuesday or Monday. I see. What you mean by meditation is understanding the implications and applications Internalizing. by allowing it to you know, take the truth, roll it around in your head, and see where it goes. And how does this apply, and where do we end up? Okay, that's, that's, that's I think it was Watson that talked about that in The Means of Grace. Hold on. Well, 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 I've got to answer that first question. What's the first question? Uh, we weak. Why weak? Strength and weakness. Yeah, what, adding to what he said, um, it allows you to take yourself away to the national anthem of I did it my way and be in the real relationship with Christ that says I'm fully dependent upon him like a child. <laughs> Talk the relationship is about dependence. I yeah. mean... There's so many intellectual people in Christianity today, they really don't depend on Christ at all. They, don't, they have an adult intellectual point of view of God, and they believe the facts, but so do the demons that shudder. But the childlike dependence is the, the new birth dependence. Yeah, faith and weakness, uh, strength and weakness. Uh, yes. I'm just thinking here, the, that book you're reading, that person will eventually, if not already, have to deal with pride. Well, that's the Achilles heel. That's the Achilles heel. And look at even when Paul talked about what he did do, he, he, he made sure that grace was prominent. Think about this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I think. 10. Dick, if I get it wrong, are you going to tease me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God's grace toward me did not prove vain, because I labored more than them all, but not me, the grace of God in me. So Paul saw his laboring as the result of grace, 
not the cause of grace. Grace comes to the humble who by faith trust the promises of God. Yes. I would say in the, the reason that we know that fellowship around God's word is a means of grace isn't because we think so or because it works. The reason is Jesus said where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And we can get together because we know, because the even, even if it seems like we're with a bunch of jerks, God is there, and, and the things that come up and the, the, the expressions of God, even though we may not like them, because I don't like when he commands me stuff, in general, my flesh doesn't like to submit to that, but it's a means of grace just by getting together yeah. with other Christians because he promises it, and therefore I can come to yeah. it knowing he's there. Right. So once you have a promise, uh, you have an object of your faith. But if you don't have a promise, and you've got some guy's book about how to be more spiritual, because he tried it and it worked, pragmatism can't determine our spirituality. Yes. So I could, I could see that somebody would respond and say, okay, well then I, I shouldn't participate in these disciplines that people are coming up with. I think I'll just kick back and kind of have a passive Christianity, and that's not the answer either. And so where's that balance? Because well, we it, are told to have fellowship. We are told to be in God's word. And so isn't memorizing five verses being in God's word, and isn't that a good thing? Being well, people are free to memorize. See, here, let me clarify some categories here. It's not passive to put yourself under the means of grace because you're doing so in faith. The active part is faith. I believe God will change my life if I come to him on his terms. So I have something I'm doing. I'm believing, and I'm coming according to the terms laid out in the Bible. So it's not passive. Secondly, the... How would you say this? What was the second part of your statement again? I don't remember. You don't remember either? (laughs) Something memorizing verses? Oh, yeah. There are plenty of things that we're free to do, but we're not commanded. Okay? There's things that we're free to do. We memorize, personally, I don't memorize verses because I remember them better if I don't try to memorize them. I don't know why that is, but they just stick in my mind, and so I just spend my day studying the Bible, and they get stuck in there somehow. But a lot of things don't stick in there, I'll tell you. I'm glad the Bible verses stick in there, because I'll tell you what, names don't. All right. Yes, Casey. So, so then you, for, if someone were to say, well, I don't need to go to church on a regular basis, I don't need to seek fellowship, I don't need to have daily time in God's Word because I'm, I'm free to, I have liberty. No, you Would don't you say have liberty. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. You don't have liberty to ignore what God commanded us to do. Right. And I, I mean, I agree with you, but I'm just, I'm just imagining that there are people who are really trying to figure out that right balance where they're not being driven by this discipline, self-disciplined, self-centered Christianity, but they're not also being too laxed and being lazy and being unbiblical. There's that, there's that balance. Yeah. There. Well, I think the answer is, uh, I, you know what I think went out of evangelicalism was this idea of the means of grace. I was actually looking it up in systematic theologies. I looked up... Charles Hodge, 1860, and he had means of grace. He had a big section about it explaining it. I looked up Burkhoff, 1932. He had means of grace. And then I picked up the Baptist theology that I had at seminary by Millard Erickson, which is not a bad theology, okay? It's not exactly Reformed, uh, but he leans that way, okay? Um, 
There's not even a section in the index under means of grace. Okay, so I think what's happened is in Baptist evangelical approach, the whole thing kind of went away, and then we end up with these spiritual disciplines because we're missing what we should have had with the means of grace. And I think that we're not seeking balance. The whole concept of seeking balance is flawed. I'm just seeking to obey what God said. And God told us and commands us to seek fellowship. Do not forsake the assembly of the brethren. So if I say, well, I have liberty, I want more balance, I'm not going to do that. I'm just sinning. There's no balance there at all. <laughs> if God says, meditate on my word and, and come together with my word, I can do that in a Bible study. I can do that this way. I can do it that way. But if I decide I don't need to because I don't need more balance in my life and do something else, I'm just sinning. No. So God okay. commands all kinds of commands that I'm supposed to do, and I find God's grace in obeying his commands in faith yeah. because he commanded it that way. And as I do that, from the outside, you should be able to look in. If it's effectual, you'll see my life changing. Not because I'm even trying to change. It's just because following his commands has that impact because this grace becomes grace. from an external thing to an internal By thing. By grace through faith. Okay, but we're still wondering, who's that jerk you were talking about? Me. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we thought maybe it was Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Larry. Sorry. <laughs> well, to kind of add on to what KC was saying was, you know, if there is a balance or maybe a tension between uh, license and uh, legalism, because, you know, we talked, uh, I think it was, if it wasn't last week, the week before, about the, some of the phrases Paul said. It says, not, not the Lord, but I. Which in that case oh, yeah, would they're, be non-binding. They're not, yeah, binding and loosing but, is but There's an aspect to that, too, yeah. that is a personal preference, I guess, or yeah. a gray area. There's binding and loosing, and what's not bound is in an area of liberty. But here's important categories, okay, important categories. Within the range of liberty, we have general revelation, okay? Anything that can be observed out here in the world, general revelation, okay? There's all kinds of things we can do and learn, but general revelation does not sanctify, okay? And that... Statement is very important. Keep that in your mind. General revelation does not sanctify. Therefore, therefore, I'm going to go back into topics I haven't written on for 15 years. One of them was the psychology. In the early 90s, I was writing on that. I think I got better categories now to deal with. What is the psychology? Well, it's one of two things. It's either accurate information from general revelation. Or it's false information from general revelation. Well, it's one of three things. Accurate information from general revelation, false information from general revelation, or divination. Because some psychologies like uh, Jung slip into this you know, spiritual realm outside of Scripture. Then you've got divination. Now, accurate information from general revelation does not sanctify. False information sanctifies even less. <laughs> Yeah, you might be able to fix problems, but sanctification isn't fixing problems. Did you see my latest article under the World View section? Sanitization or sanctification. I can't even see either one. Clean up the outer man and don't do anything with the heart. That that would be to sanitize. But but if that's what we emphasize, let's you go into your typical great big evangelical church and you got on staff. Uh, maybe eight or ten people with degrees in some sort of therapy. 
So they're trying to use general revelation to sanctify their people. And it doesn't work because there's no power in it. Only the sanctification comes through God's means. Yes. Okay. First of all, Keith, I agree with you about the word balance. I think that's a poor word choice on my part. I'll get real specific. I think... You know, if, if we're saying, okay, read the Bible, and I'll just use that example, and you um, read the Bible once a month, you have some time where you're studying God's Word, uh, versus somebody who's spending time in God's Word daily, who's going to grow more? I, I would say, and maybe I'm thinking about this incorrectly, but the person who's in God's Word daily, and isn't that what some of the people who are writing these books on spiritual disciplines are getting at? Uh, that can be... Yeah, they have stuff like that in, in the chapters that are valid, but then they go to solitude, silence, all kinds of stuff that aren't even... So their categories are broke. That's, if, you can't, if you can't discern what God ordained from what God didn't ordain, don't write a book. Okay, just get, out of the, get out of the kitchen. You, you, you're not even qualified to write about spiritual things because how in the world is putting myself under the authority of God's Word... On, on equal ground with going sitting in the silence. Where did God say, if I sit in silence, he'll meet me? Nowhere. So can I believe the promise of God that he's going to meet me when I sit in silence? No, because he didn't promise that. So what am I doing in the silence? Well, I don't know. You want to sit in silence and you know, do whatever you want. But you know, Join a monastery, but it's not going to sanctify you. Yes. What I'm saying... The fact that God gives means of grace is more than just one. There's not just one means of grace. Yeah. If you said, if he said, if you only study the Bible, that's where you'll meet me. Period. And then, I guess conceivably, you could study it more and more, and that's where you'd meet him. If some person didn't, but it's actually not the studying the Bible that sanctifies you. It's the faith that you approach it with, because it's through faith. You can have a scholar that studies the Bible and mm-hmm. studies the Bible in the original languages and all Aramaic. Greek, Hebrew, and he can study his whole life and not find grace there because he's not studying it in faith. Mm-hmm. So just a greater effort on my part, on my part, to follow the means of grace because I'm going to get sanctified, and I'll show you, is you're not going to find the grace <laughs> that's there because that's, yeah. that's the opposite approach to what's there. The and, God gives grace to the humble. And yeah. as I approach the means of grace, I may want to study the Bible because I'm a jerk, and I don't like being with other people. So I'm going to study the Bible and find grace there, when in actuality God's means of grace for me would be expressed much more clearly in coming together with other people yeah. because the, the, the pressures that I would find there would make me less of a jerk uh, than, yeah. than, than studying on my own. So I don't think you can... There, there's freedom and liberty there, but God uses his right. whole means of grace as a whole. It's not let me, isolated. Let me take off on that. That's Fellowship... Is like the accelerator for the, the means of grace. Okay? Fellowship, it says they, 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 they sat in their apostles' teaching, broke bread, prayed, and fellowship. Now, the fellowship is the corporate approach to the means of grace. The Lord's table is a corporate event. All right? The, the proclaimed word that we sit under is a corporate event. Taking and opening the Bible and admonishing one another. There's like 99 one another's in the Bible. I looked them up the other day. Okay. That, it, it, it takes what I did. Well, even just these dialogue of one or two people. If I'm studying a passage and I'm thinking, hey, I think this means this and I think it applies and I think we could do something with it, then I want to talk to somebody. I want another Christian 
and just start working it. And as we work it together and apply it to our lives, it, it blossoms. That's how that Mishta article that we just published, that's how that happened. Keith and I went back and forth on that for years until it all fleshed out and made sense. Yes. Where does the expression means of grace come from? It comes from theology, the uh, Lutheran and Reformed theology. And the reason, thank, good question, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Um, Lutheran and Reformed theology use that term in order to define what God was going to do and how God was going to meet people and what a church is. See, at the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church was adding practices and practices and practices and practices and loading these things on the people and telling them all these things they had to do. Yeah, disciplines, exactly. That's who invented spiritual disciplines, the Roman Catholic Church. And you do all of these things, and they had more of them all the time. So the Reformation said, no, Scripture alone. But then the question is, all right, now what's a valid church, and what does a valid church practice? Let me give you the Reformation definition that was agreed on by both Luther and Calvin. And they used the term sacrament, so don't get offended by that. That's the term they had in their vocabulary. But they meant... They came to it through the study of Scripture, so it wasn't just something... Yeah, yeah, they got it from Scripture. Here's what they said. If the Word of God is being purely taught and the sacraments administered according to the Lord's institution, then you can be sure that a true church exists there. That was their definition. If you had word and sacrament, and by sacrament they meant baptism and the Lord's Supper, then you have a church. And so the word, the gathered church, the Lord's Supper and baptism became their definition of means of grace. Now, that doesn't mean we can't search the Scriptures and see maybe the list is a little too short. Like Charles Hodge in 1860 searched the Scriptures and came to the same conclusion that I have, that prayer is a means of grace. Why? Because it says in Hebrews that if you go to the throne of grace, you find mercy and help in time of need. And you find grace, it actually says you find grace. So if the Bible says we find grace through prayer, then we don't have any reason to kick it out. Uh, anybody else? Okay, let's get back. Hey, we've got to get into some verses here. But you know what we're doing right now? I don't mind doing this because this is what I'm talking about. You take an idea, strength perfected through weakness, and you work it out in the church. You, you, you help each other understand things, and you interact, and it becomes making sense. So strength perfected in weakness shows us the priority of grace, and God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So that's why Paul says what he does. Okay, he, when, he, when he has things that seem like prideful boasting, he says, I'm a fool, but you've compelled me. So he told all those things. But after he told his big litany of all the things he did, he says, there's no grace in that. That's not where God meets me. He, he meet, where God met me was in my thorn in the flesh. All right. So let's go to the next chapter. Chapter 12, Paul's vision. 2 Corinthians 12, 1. Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay, his theme is strength through weakness. Necessary, in the Greek, day, 
means uh, it's, it's something that has to be. But what made it necess- what makes this necessary? It's not the Lord. It's not the Lord's divine necessity here at all. It's the necessity of Paul answering these false apostles who came to the Corinthians with a different gospel, a different Jesus, and a different spirit. And if Paul doesn't answer those guys, and they end up being in the minds of the Corinthians the apostles of Christ, what happens? If they are actually believed to be true apostles of Christ, then the Corinthian church has to obey what they say because they're speaking for Christ. And so here they'd be speaking for Christ, a different gospel, a different Christ, and it would be fatal to the Corinthian church. So Paul has to establish that he himself has the credentials of being the true apostle of Christ because he's the one that had a true gospel. And so he's answering their claims that they had things that were superior to what Paul had. And so when he says, it's though it is not profitable, it's necessary, boasting is in the present tense, so he's going to continue to do so. And what he's going to do now is talk about visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, I was going to cite my buddy Garland here, talking about why do it? Why do it? To dwell on it, says Garland, to dwell on our own excellence is dangerous because it causes us to turn our attention from God's glory to our own and stokes the sinful desire to create a circle of admirers for ourselves rather than the disciples for Christ. So why boast if nothing is to be gained from it? Because much more could be lost if Paul does not somehow cancel out the seductive megalomania. That's a cool word, isn't it? Megalomania of his rivals. The rivals have set the agenda agenda and have bedazzled some Corinthians with their boasts. Paul's deft use of irony... And his own boasting helps the Corinthians to see the foolishness of all boasting and will help them see the rivals for what they are. So he's using irony in his own boasting, hoping that these guys would uh, get the idea how stupid it is to do this. And what are these other guys saying? He says this, we can only guess, but it's not improbable that the rivals were quite ready to feed the Corinthians' appetite for spiritually thrilling visions Accounts of supernatural revelations gave a boost to their authority. The rivals may even have gone into detail about the circumstances in which they received their transcendent visions. This genre existed in their world at that time. And a very interesting book that helps understand that is a book by Clinton Arnold called The Colossian Syncretism. And in it, he talks about these revelatory experiences and visions that various religions offered in Asia Minor. And one of the types of mysticism that's discussed is what's called Merkaba mysticism. Merkaba Merkaba means chariot. And it was a Jewish mysticism based on Ezekiel and the idea of a chariot that might take you to God and, and, and give you a, a heavenly journey, and then you could come back and tell about it. Now, I have here one of the things that Garland provides is stuff from the Greco-Roman world that very much was, um, a lot of the Jews were Hellenistic and, and there was sharing of ideas back and forth. That's one of the things Arnold points out. 
So I'm going to read to you here an account of the Mithras liturgy that came, that would have been known in that part of the world at this time when Paul's writing. Here's the Mithras liturgy. I'm quoting from, from it, from a visionary ascent to heaven. You will see yourself being lifted up and ascending to the height so that you will seem to be in midair. You will see all immortal things, for in that day and hour you will see the divine order of the skies. The presiding gods will appear through the disk of God. And you will see the gods staring intently at you, rushing at you. Then you will see the gods looking graciously upon you and no longer rushing at you but rather going about in their own order of affairs. So when you see that the world above is clear and circling and none of the gods or angels is threatening you, expect to hear a great clash, crash of thunder so as to shock you. And after you have said the second prayer, you will see many five-pronged stars coming from the disk and filling the air. They say again, silence, silence. So when the disk is open, you will see the fireless circle and the fiery doors shut tight. Uh, Clinton Arnold actually cited the same Mithras liturgy and some of the inscriptions they found in these temples, and he believes it's the key to understanding Colossians chapter 2, where it talks about people taking stands on visions that they've had. And what was this liturgy for, and why did they have it? Well, the point of it was this, according to Arnold. They had an experience where they met their demons. Notice the gods were rushing at them. But then by going through this liturgy, the gods were pacified, and, and, they, and they, they went silent. And these people believe that having gone in there and come out again, there's a, there's a technical word, word called embatuane, having entered, that they are now free from all bad fate through their visionary experience, and the, and the demons can't get them anymore. Yeah, they had a get-out-of-jail-free card, and, they, and then when they became Christian, here's the kicker. When they became Christian, they wanted to not give up their experience. And they were telling the other Christians that they should have the same experience if they want to have the status that they have. That's what Colossians is about. Now, there could very well be something like that going on here with these false apostles offering some sort of a visionary experience or claiming that they themselves have one. Now, why would somebody do that? Well, they do it today. What, see, listen, let me t- tell you something. What was the necessary experience to be an apostle of Christ? Saw the resurrected Christ. Okay? Bodily. The qualification for being an apostle, well, there's more than that, but that's one of them, wasn't that you had a visionary experience. That doesn't qualify you. Because anybody could say they had a visionary experience. Anybody could say, I ascended into the heavens, and I met the gods, and I talked to Jesus himself, and Jesus himself told me I'm his apostle. There, I have written articles quoting guys saying that. How do you know you're an apostle? Well, I went to heaven, and Jesus told me. No, no. You, 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 didn't see, you weren't there when Christ was bodily raised. You're not, you don't qualify. You know, Rick Joyner's book, The... Final Quest is probably one of the best examples. It was very, very popular in the charismatic circles, and he claimed that, that same thing. Yes. And whereas what happened to the true apostles is that other men witnessed Jesus Christ coming to them as well. They weren't doing it on their own in some heavenly experience. Even Paul on the road to Damascus had non-believers and people hostile to Christ that 
saw the saw everything that happened as well as he did. Yeah. So there is witnesses that that testified to the fact, not just them themselves. Yeah, and, and he said he was one born out of time, but he did claim I've, that he saw the resurrected Christ. So you have to be appointed by Christ in the flesh, come in the flesh bodily to be an apostle. So the false apostles, they claim they had a vision. Well, Paul, the one he's going to tell us about here, in not very much detail, this is the only place it's ever mentioned. It's not anywhere in Acts. Paul never talks about it any other time. And the only reason he talks about it here is to counter these other guys. They're saying, I had a vision. Paul said, well, I did too, but it's not legal to talk about it. Paul was an apostle because he had a vision. He was an apostle because he saw the resurrected Christ who appointed him to be apostle. Now, what does that do for the popes? They're not apostles. They can't speak for God. What does it do for the New Apostolic Reformation? They don't speak for God. What does that do for anybody that claims they're apostle? They're not. You can safely ignore them. They haven't seen the resurrected Christ. And if they say they saw it in a vision, they're no better than the false apostles that have a different Jesus, different spirit, and a different gospel in, in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, that's really bad. All right, back to our verse. It's not profitable other than to refute the false ones. But I will go on to visions, wishing he did not have to. He Remember, look down at verse 6. After he does do this, For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain for this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears in me. How do you know Paul's correct? He preached Christ. You just put the test, 1 John 4, 1 through 5, to anybody. He preached Christ. He preached the gospel. He confessed Christ come in the flesh. I've got somebody here, page 5, I was going to cite. This guy is Dr. Martin from the Word Commentary Series. But Paul's boasting ultimately lead to God's glory, something his opponents do not set as their aim in his estimation. 10:12. It appears that Paul felt it imperative to boast in order to gain the attention of the Corinthians and to overthrow the position of his opponents, though he had his doubts about its effectiveness. The main thrust of the opening words of 12:1 is that Paul evidently considered boasting the best way to overcome the tide of opposition that was against him. So he ends up doing what he himself ought not to do. Dick, there's a wonderful verse. Could you read, look up and read for us Isaiah 57:15? This would fit in with our previous discussion on strength perfected in weakness. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Yeah. So how does God meet? God is high and holy. So how does he meet a person? God gives grace to the humble, the lowly, the contrite. He doesn't meet somebody. God's high and holy, and he doesn't say, I'm high and holy, and I, I uh, meet the one who has a visionary experience that comes up to my realm. He doesn't say that. So I meet the one who's contrite and humble. 
Okay, so here you have the transcendence of God and the imminence of God in one verse. Isaiah 57, 15. Transcendent, high and holy, imminent, he meets us humble sinners. And that not that exactly what God does in Christ? Today I have the wonderful privilege of preaching the first part of the prodigal son parable, and I'm overwhelmed at the glory and the wonder of this passage. And it's all there because Jesus ate with sinners, and he was told that that was wrong. But God comes in Christ to meet the lowly and the contrite. Isn't there a temptation to take the, uh, this uh, teaching on the means of grace, exercise it, do it, and then claim out of pride that I am in the means of grace, and so therefore I am meeting God. And uh, we, we lose that humility. Uh, you know, Patrick, I don't think there's a single thing in the church that somebody can't figure out a way to have pride get into. <laughs> I think that pride is a nasty thing and it's always waiting to bite us. And it, it, it needs to be brought to the cross and crucified. But I'll tell you what, the gospel, if you want to be humbled, you just, the gospel has a powerful way of doing that. As I've been studying the prodigal son here for three weeks, if that doesn't humble you, it, it, then the heart is awful hard. That, that is so touching that, this, that God comes and meets somebody who has no possible, nothing going for them. Yes. I think it boils down to the desire, I mean, the means of grace. It should be a natural desire that you naturally do it, not a work that you, you know, you place yourself under the means of grace. But you don't turn it into work. It should be something that just comes yeah. natural to a believer that's hungry for the word and wants to grow close it, to God. Anything can be done as a work, but it doesn't mean it's intended to be. Okay? And, and Luther was very concerned about that, and that's why Luther continually said that, God meets you when you come to him by faith. So the Lord's table will not benefit you unless you come by faith. And if you think of Acts 2, they, after they were smitten to the heart, the Holy Spirit convicted them, they asked Peter what to do, and he said, Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it was after that that they ended up gathering under the apostles' teaching. That's what they did. And getting back to what Patrick said, it's easy to to whack the Catholics or something for for not following the means of grace or for substituting spiritual disciplines and pretending uh, their means of grace. But if I take the assumption that we're a church that has the means of grace or that that's what we believe in and we pursue as a church, while we're not going to be too tempted to be proud of our spiritual disciplines, the temptations that we face are exactly what Patrick brought up. Mm-hmm. We're a better church than you are because we follow the means of grace. And by doing that, we're denying the very thing that we're we're claiming to do. And I think that the application of that to our church would be that we should be humble because if you're following the means of grace and they're going to be effective, it's only because you're humble. And and a a proud follower of the means of grace is an oxymoron. Well, but see, that's like that article we... Yeah, that's true. But that's like that article we published about the judgment of the Lord's Supper. Remember? um, 1 Corinthians 11. They, were, they had the means of grace, but they were, the means of grace were for their damnation because they were coming thinking they're worthy. All right? The, the best thing to know is that you're not worthy. Well, this little foretaste, I promise you in the sermon, we're going to see that. If we can't see how unworthy we are after we see Luke 15, 
And, you, and if we don't see how gracious God is after we see Luke 15, then we need to really pray that God would humble us. I'll tell you, because we, were, we have nothing going for us. We have no reason to ever think that we should be in God's family. We shouldn't be honored as sons and daughters, but God's done so. <laughs> he took us and made us what we could never hope to be. Let's go to verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in a body I did not know or out of the body I did not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Oh my, is there a lot. I just printed out some couple commentaries here on just the first ten verses of this chapter. And look, oh, it's page after page after page. Because of all the questions, because there's, there's so many things that we don't totally know. Number one, why does Paul talk about himself in the third person? Now, some people think he's not talking about himself. But that's just not a good reading. He is talking about himself because he got a thorn in the flesh because of this experience. Somebody else didn't get the thorn in the flesh. Paul did. He, why is he using the third person? Well, because he, this whole thing of talking about the experience is so distasteful to him, he wants to distance himself from it. That's how I understand it. He, he thinks, I, don't, I, sh- I shouldn't be doing this anyhow. And I don't want to talk about my visions. I don't want to talk about my revelations and my catching up into heaven. And so I'll just call it, I know a man in Christ. Um, so... Paul is, is the mystery man, and in a third person here to avoid boasting. Fourteen years ago helps us specify when this happened. This, this experience is not mentioned anywhere in Acts. It's in vain to go through Acts try to find out where this happened. You can only guess. But the timing, because he gives us 14 years, puts us somewhere around 44 A.D. So that would make it some years after his conversion, when he had this experience, 44 A.D. And he says he doesn't know whether he's in the body or not. Now, there's a lot of discussion about that. Why, why does he say he doesn't know? Well, the simplest answer would be he really doesn't know. But there's some discussion about Paul wanting to avoid giving any wrong impressions. So he says it this way. Here's what Garland says. Um, Oh, there's, where did I have this note? I see another one I, I got marked off here. Page 6. Excuse me. Okay, yeah. Here's a, here's a previous quote from Garland. But it also predates the establishment. Okay, this 44 AD. Predates the establishment of the church at Corinth, which he claims validates his credentials as an apostle. 3, 1 through 3. It means that he had spent months with them and never mentioned this incident once. As far as he is concerned, his rapturous visions have nothing to do with their becoming Christians. Therefore, visions have nothing to do with authenticating an apostle. That's what I said earlier. Visions have nothing to do with authenticating an apostle. Well, that makes good sense, doesn't it? Because anybody could claim they had a vision, and they could make up anything they want. You could either actually have one or make up that you had one. Either way, it doesn't prove anything. This particular vision also resulted in the thorn in the flesh, it seems to have provoked some disparagement of Paul. He, he notifies them that the thorn in the flesh, the clearest evidence of his weakness, was the outcome of a spectacular vision, his entrance into paradise. 
So, did somebody else want to go to paradise? Uh, no. Paul repeats twice that he does not know the circumstances of his ascent, whether it occurred in the body or out of the body. This admission of his ignorance implies that it is all quite unimportant and may have a polemical edge to it. He could be taking a swipe at those who only prize out-of-body experiences. On the other hand, Paul generally may not know. He would be aware that there are both types of rapture in Jewish tradition. But why does he repeat himself? For all things that Paul may be emphasizing his total lack of comprehension about how the event occurred as a wonderful happening whose mode of operation was known only to God. This conclusion makes the best sense of Paul's repetition. Paul didn't do anything to cause this. We can see that by the tense of the verbs. Caught up. Okay. Passive. It just happened to Paul. He didn't prepare himself in some way to make this happen. He didn't have a plan so other people can have it happen. And he didn't want to even talk about it. He was forced to by the boasting of the false apostles. And whatever he saw there, as we'll see next week, it's illegal to talk about. Okay. I wonder why the rules changed. You know how many books there are out there now of people who visited heaven? That's the one I just don't get. When did, when did the rules change? It's illegal to talk about it, then it's illegal to talk about it. Is it that if it's illegal for Paul, is it legal for everybody else? And so there, I've been reading books since I was a brand new Christian by people that have visited heaven. I read The first one I read was written like in the 1940s, and I read Kenneth Hagin. He went up to heaven, and Jesus taught Kenneth Hagin the, pro, the prosperity gospel in heaven. Absolutely. You can read his book, I Believe in Visions. Jesus said this, I would make every Christian wealthy if they would just let me. That's what Jesus told Kenneth Hagin in heaven. Yeah, exactly. He plagiarized E.W. Kenyon. Um, then, oh, I don't know how many of those I've read. But then we mentioned Rick Joyner visited heaven. Now there's some other guy. Yeah, Jesse Duplantis went to heaven. This one, I really, this one was really funny. Have you seen the Jesse Duplantis? It's kind of a funny faith preacher. He wrote a he wrote a he wrote a book about going to heaven. Well, he went there and he was talking to Dave King David. I mean, nobody ever goes to heaven and talks to a peon. You know, they talk to Paul, Jesus, David. Okay, so Jesse Duplantis is talking to David, and guess what David told him? He says, "Don't listen to all those psalms. Some of them I wrote. I was having a really bad day." <laughs> oh, no wonder the the lament psalms are in the Bible. David had a bad day, so I would pay attention to those. Just read the positive ones. Okay. Maybe the rules changed for those guys individually when they lost their fear of God. Yeah, they lost their fear of God, exactly. Okay, so I need to quit talking here so I save a little bit for prodigal son. Thanks for invigorating discussion of the Bible. God bless you.